And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. A quick warning before we start. This episode contains a couple of references to violence. I'm Dana Balutz, and this is Kerning Cultures. Well, for me, it was totally unexpected. Every time I stepped out of the van, I would get choked up. <laughs> and there were times when I was so overwhelmed emotionally that my daughter Abby would stand between me and everyone else who was getting off the van to just give me some room because I was turning around because I was crying. I had no idea why I was crying. I don't think it's overstating it if I say, you know, I'm a different person because of this trip. Nubar Alexanian grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts. His family is Armenian all the way back generations. And his first language was Armenian. And he remembers Armenian food and music as a constant background to his childhood. But there was also a hole in his family's history, one that he really didn't know how to fill. I did not feel connected to the homeland, but that was really because my parents never talked about it. My parents were really serious about being American. Um, my grandparents never spoke about the Armenian genocide. You know, denial is a powerful thing. <laughs> The Armenian Genocide began in 1915. Under the cover of World War I, the Turkish military murdered over one million ethnic Armenians, Greeks, and other minorities. Many were killed in death marches. They were forced to walk in these long lines through the desert towards concentration camps. And growing up, Nubar knew the genocide as this awful event that some of his ancestors had been subjected to. But it was distant. Um, I knew a rough story sort of rough story that uh, my maternal grandmother had to go on a death march with her brother, but she survived by eating desert grass. You know, she saw her entire family massacred except for her three daughters and her brother. The genocide became one of those foundational events leading up to the creation of the Turkish state. Today, almost all of historic Armenia is part of the Republic of Turkey. And the Turkish government has a very different narrative of what was inflicted upon Armenians in those years. What they say are things like, it was an unfortunate tragedy that was just part of World War I, or Armenians left on their own volition, or that thousands of Turks died too. They were the real victims. This kind of deliberate distortion of history has had its intended effect. Today, only 33 countries officially recognize the Armenian genocide. If you think about that, so as a people, we have been traumatized by this event, which nobody believes, basically. So as a people, where do we belong? Who are we? How do you figure out what your identity is if your brutal past is denied, basically? Nubar is a photographer and a filmmaker. His entire life, he's traveled the world taking pictures for magazines and newspapers like Life magazine and the New York Times. He's worked in more than 30 countries, but he's never been to Armenia. And the idea to go never really crossed his mind. 
until he retired and started thinking more about the Armenian part of his identity and a sense of belonging that he felt he was missing. I mean, I live in, I live in a really nice fishing village here in Massachusetts. <laughs> um, it's a great place. I've lived here for 50 years. This is home to me, but there's another home. Um, and if you're an immigrant, there has to be another home. My dad talks a lot about how he sort of tried to escape this sense of Armenian identity. And so, you know, that showed up a lot in what he didn't bring to my childhood. Um, this is Nubar's daughter, Abby Alexanian. Identity, but I would still see it and feel it during holidays. My grandparents, you know, the little comments that they would make and my dad's you know, stories from his childhood. And so there's just such a concept of a like container that had not been filled. And I know the container was called Armenianness or being Armenian, but I didn't know what was supposed to go in it. So I think that was so much a, a driving force for me when I was graduating from college, um, which led me to asking my dad if he would go with me on a trip to Armenia. I was like, absolutely. <laughs> I would go anywhere with her, but to Armenia, sure. So, yeah, I mean, I, my response was, yeah, absolutely, yes. In our episode today, Nubar and Abby go on that trip, looking for answers to questions that they both knew they had, but didn't know the right way to ask them. The answers, they thought, might be back at the very beginning, in their family's ancestral homeland. Producer Alex Atak takes the story from here. So when Nubar first got this idea into his head to go with his daughter Abby to visit their ancestral homeland, at first he started looking at flights to Yerevan, uh, which is the capital of modern-day Armenia. The plan was fly into Yerevan, book a hotel, and just make day trips out to different parts of the country, learn about their heritage that way. I was talking to a colleague of mine who's Armenian and she asked me how, you know, what we were going to do. And, and I said, well, we're going to go to Yerevan. I have a nice hotel and we're going to find some guides and stuff. And she stopped me and said, what does Yerevan have to do with you? Nothing. And I'm like, nothing? And she said, no, your families come from Western Armenia, Eastern Turkey, Anatolia. That's the place. And of course she was right. The Republic of Armenia today is just a small corner of what used to be considered Armenia. Now, about 90% of Armenians in America trace their roots back to what is today an entirely different country. Nubar knew the names of his grandparents' villages, where they lived before fleeing the genocide. And so, after this conversation with his colleague, he completely upended his plans, changed them entirely, and decided instead that he was going to book a trip to eastern Turkey, and visit his grandmother's village there. But they needed a guide. Nubar and Abi don't speak Turkish, and when you go to these historic Armenian areas today, a lot of the Armenian history, like the houses and the gravestones, they're just gone, or at least you wouldn't know where to find them unless you knew what to look for. If they wanted to find the exact place where Nubar's grandparents had lived, they were going to need an expert. Armin Aroyan is like a gift to the Armenian community that just descended from the heavens. This is Carol Bertram. She's uh, the author of a book called A House in the Homeland. And she's been writing about Armenians visiting their ancestral hometowns for years. 
It's her book that got us set off on this story in the first place. She's been on around a dozen trips to eastern Turkey with groups of Armenian pilgrims, as she calls them, each time with the same guide, Mr. Armin Aroyan. He had a family who had also been uh, survivors of the genocide, but they had moved to Egypt, not to the United States. And then he came to the United States and became an engineer, decided, oh, why don't I go see my village? And he did. Well, it was an opportunity. I was in Germany and uh, working for a German company for, for a month. And there was a long weekend coming up. Which this is Armin Aroyan speaking in an oral history interview in 2018 for the Institute of Armenian Studies at the University of Southern California. Thanks, by the way, to the people there for letting us use this audio. So I told my work partner, I said, you guys can go to Turkey. I saw a big ad says, visit Turkey. So I told him, is it easy to go to Turkey? He said, yeah, we can go over a weekend. So why don't you go this weekend? So I went and bought the ticket. But I bought it and he went into that first trip with caution. Growing up, he'd always been taught that Turkey was in some way dangerous for Armenians. Well, Turkey was very bad, yeah. We just had a negative image, yeah. Yeah, the teachers in high school or in primary school always talked about the massacres. I knew it was forbidden territory, though. And I was very really scared on the airplane. And I told the, the hostess, was a man, he says, is it really okay? He said, yes, he brought me oh, candy. Eat this candy, you feel okay. <laughs> so he babysat me. But when he landed and went through the airport security and out into Istanbul, he was surprised. Everything here felt familiar. The food, the way people looked, the music. It was very illuminating and interesting. And uh, it was not, the image was different than we had before going. So that gave me the encouragement that I should go back and go deeper. That first trip was pretty short, just three or four days. But once he realized how easy it was to travel to Turkey, he wanted to go again. And he wanted to go back with a more specific objective. What was the goal of that trip for you? To go to my grandfather's birthplace, which is Jibin. In Jibin, did you find it? Yeah. What was that reaction like, or what was that experience like for you? It was tremendous. It lacks any words. And an experience you never see again, I even cried. On the spot, so I got the soil from Jimmy. When he got back to America, he started telling other Armenians in his community in Pasadena about his trip and how he'd actually managed to find his grandfather's village. He had photos and video clips, and he started showing them in these little presentations at his local church. People wanted to join. I mean, I started showing these videos. After the show, they would come and say, why don't you take us? And just sparked such longing in the Armenian community that everyone wanted to go. So he slowly started doing that. And so, in October 1992, Armin got on a Pan Am flight to Turkey again, this time with six Armenian-Americans from California, in search of their ancestral villages. In one case, they found the actual house, near to what is today called Gaziantep. So we went to his house, a three-story house, big house. He sat in the, he sat in the middle, in the courtyard, he says, my God, he says, they really had a big size. Four families are living where one family lived before. He was so proud of it. And that became his life's work. He stopped being an engineer, didn't have a company. This was all word of mouth. And his desire, his dedication to giving people the kind of experience that he had of his past. Over 30 years, Armin Aroyan took nearly 1,500 pilgrims to visit their ancestral homeland 
over nearly 100 trips. He had to stop in 2017 because of health issues, and he passed the torch on to Annie Carcagian. With his blessings, I took over the tours and started doing and guiding, organizing, and doing all aspects of the tour on my own. I can't fill up the, his shoes, but I promise um, I can do my best. Annie met Armin as a pilgrim herself, looking for her own ancestral village. I was born in Lebanon, and then when I was two years old, moved to Damascus, Syria. And then I grew up there, and that's why we went back and forth to Lebanon during the summer. And then um, in 1982, we moved to the United States, myself and my whole family. Her ancestors are Armenian, from a small village called Vakafli in what is today southern Turkey, just a stone's throw from the Syrian border. Her parents and grandparents had talked about it growing up, but nobody from her family had actually been back since the genocide, until Annie went for herself. The minute I stepped out of the van, I, I looked around and I felt I really belonged there. It's, I don't know, it was very weird. It just, it was an amazing feeling. I just looked at the nature, I looked at the people, especially the people, especially the same features, same eye colors. For a minute, I, I, like, I would look and I say, what am I? It was very emotional, very emotional. And I, I started remembering all the stories that my father used to tell me growing up. Sorry, sometimes I get emotional. I mean, I traveled a lot. I even traveled so many times to Armenia, but I never felt I belong there, you know? But I don't know what's the deal with that when I'm in, in historic Armenia. I automatically feel I'm, I'm one of them. Um, this is my homeland. Some of the people who make this pilgrimage go into it knowing a lot about their family's story. But that wasn't the case for Abby and Nubar. I heard just little bits and pieces. I don't think I knew very much. Um, and in, in fact, I think my dad didn't know everything. And so we started by interviewing my grandparents to find out more about what what the stories were. I, I think there were a lot of feelings that came up in that experience because I, I, I'd never talked with my grandparents in that way before. And so I... I felt a sense of almost intrusiveness into something they maybe didn't want to share, but it turns out they were very happy to. My father could not understand why his granddaughter wants to go back to the old country. He just couldn't believe it. We didn't understand why. You know, and for and, and, I, and I get that. I mean, it's like for, for, for a second generation, or, or actually for first generation, the past is the past. That's how they view it. But in those interviews with Abby's grandparents, uh, Nubar's parents, they learned in more detail about what had happened to their family during the genocide and how Nubar's grandmother had escaped her village in historic Armenia and made it to America. And it was that village, which is called Husanig, that they decided was going to be their kind of endpoint for the pilgrimage, the place that they would pin their whole trip around. They had no idea what was there today or what they would find or even what they wanted to do when they arrived. The plan was just to get there, to see it and feel it for themselves. Often before going on these trips, pilgrims won't have an exact idea of where their grandparents or their great-grandparents' house was or is. 
They might have clues like just a street name or like a land deed or a drawing, or even sometimes just the name of a town that's usually since been changed to a Turkish name. But this is where Armin and now Annie will help them. Pilgrims will bring uh, whatever they have to them and, like detectives, they'll start narrowing it down until they've got a rough location. A lot of people come with, like, um, not photos, but drawn pictures from their grandma that is like a map. They would say, this was the church, there's a creek, and this was the house. And then we try, even we try to find the from the drawing where the houses used to be. So literally just like hand-drawn maps? Hand-drawn maps, yeah. Wow. Yes, yes. And these have been passed down in the family? Yes, 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 yeah. But they don't always know the exact spot they're looking for from memory. Usually Annie will narrow it down to just a town or a village. And then once we're there, we ask around a lot. We talk to old people, we ask around, and a lot of the elderly people of the village, they remember more. Uh, So we talk to them, we give time. And then one, one thing leads to another, and then here we are at the location that we're looking for. Sometimes that might be a house in the distinctive Armenian style made of wood. Sometimes it might just be an empty plot of land, or there might be a new building on top of that plot of land. In Nubar and Abby's case, they'd brought with them a hand-drawn map of the village, Husnig, that they'd found in a book. An impeccable map of who lived there, where they lived, who lived next to each other, where, where the mosque was, where the Armenian churches were, the schools, you know, the cafes, all of it is on this map. And so we had that as a guide and there's all the streets had, the street names were the names of the people who lived, the, the families that lived on them. So my grandmother's uh, family name was Goshtigian. And so we just were able to see Goshtigian Street on the map and so that gave us a much closer more detailed like connection to the place before they left the u.s they started getting these threatening messages nubar had made a facebook page to record his trip and somebody they don't know who sent a message to the page claiming they were a turkish police officer it's in broken english but the message is clear we'll be following you from the moment you leave the airport and you won't be safe in Turkey. It wasn't specific in a sense that made me feel like that was there was a true risk that that single person was going to do something. Um, but it made me, it was unnerving, um, but it also kind of made me understand in a different way why this feels really important. Amun had been dealing with this sort of thing for years. They'd never had any serious safety issues on the trip, but it is uncomfortable. A group of Armenians showing up in Turkish villages looking for their ancestors' homes. In Turkey, the government's official position, more or less, is that the genocide didn't happen. And that doctrine trickles down. Usually, pilgrims aren't greeted with hostility, just a total misunderstanding of what really happened. Author Carol Bertram again. Well, it's a strategic misunderstanding that is taught in the curriculum in Turkish schools, uh, which is many layered. But one of the stories is that the Armenians were sent away during um, the war period for their protection. 
and they didn't that's what they were told we're protecting you you know you're going to be able to come back but of course they the men were killed immediately the women and children were sent on death marches and died but carol told me that despite the threatening messages that the alexanians got on all the trips she's been on when armenians arrive in their villages looking for fragments of their family's past people are very welcoming but in general people had a warm memory of Armenians and they knew about neighbors they knew who had owned what the hard part was when they would not all of them but many of them would say oh we're so glad to see you why did you leave that was a big gulp for Armenians do you really want to know why we left and so in 2012 Nubar and Abi packed their bags and they got on a plane to Istanbul and then they got another flight to Elazig, which is the Turkish name. Its Armenian names are Mazir or Kharbed. So when we got there, I mean, immediately everything seemed like it was Armenian. I mean, the look of a Turkish man or woman is very much like an Armenian man or woman. Uh, the food is very similar or the same. Um, you know, the music is almost the same. Everybody on these trips would pack into just one or two of those small minibuses with Armin at the front. They have to get around everybody's villages, and they're not always near to each other, so it can be miles and miles of driving a day. But they pass the time singing or chatting or just playing games. You can imagine Armin at the front of our buses with his wonderful Kurdish driver. We're in this small little bus, and he's on the phone all the time figuring things out and where we're going. He and Armin would be back and forth trying to find the villages, which was difficult, even if you had been there before. Very difficult roads. We'd start at about 8 in the morning and get home about 9 or 10 at night. Armin occasionally would talk about the villages, but this was really not a history trip at all. He would be more likely to point out and say, oh, your friend so-and-so from Racine have family in this village. At one point on Abby and Nubar's trip, Armin pulled the van over to the side of the road. Everybody stepped out and they found themselves overlooking this deep gorge with the Euphrates River running slowly through the bottom of it. Armin told them its name. It's called the Kema Gorge. I didn't know about the Kema Gorge. I ha we had no idea what was happening. And so I'm shooting it. Everybody's out of the van. Nubar had been filming everything on this trip so far. He thought he might make a short documentary out of it one day. Or at least it just felt important to record for his family's sake. The gorge itself is beautiful. I mean, the rock structure is red. I mean, the color. The Euphrates River is like a biblical river, you know? <laughs> And it looks like there's a, um, like a small memorial for Turkish soldiers that had died there. It sort of looks like there's a spot to pull over to kind of like pay respects to that memorial. And so you, that's what we did. And I didn't know what it was. And then um, Armin started to explain it to us that it was this sort of big landmark in the sort of uh, history of the genocide and that you know groups of Armenians had been marched there and many jumped off the, the the cliff into the river rather than continue 
women and children were forced up to the top of the gorge to jump into the gorge to their death. You know, it was it's just horrific. As the group was standing there looking down at this gorge and at this memorial plaque next to it, not for their ancestors, but for Turkish soldiers, Nubar looked around and realized he couldn't find his daughter, Abby. I don't see her anywhere. And the driver comes up and says to me, Abby's in the van. So I go into the van, I'm still rolling, and she's in tears. It made them jump. And their blood turns the river red. And their bodies clog the river. And there's a memorial here for 12 Turkish soldiers who were killed because they drove off the bridge. I like, couldn't process it. It was so, this sort of contrast and the juxtaposition of this sort of very like militaristic memorial and the sort of roughness and and like natural landscape of like tragedy and death that was so visible and completely erased. I mean, Armenians don't have a Birkenau or an Auschwitz to visit. It makes the story about what happened to Armenians difficult because there's not one place where all of this happened. It happened everywhere. So this was a place where we could go, where we knew what happened to Armenians there. After the break, Nubar and Abby go looking for their family's ancestral home. So a few days after they pulled over at the Kemmer Gorge, it was time to visit Nubar's grandmother's village, the place that they had come all this way to see. Their bus pulled into this small hamlet. It was just a small handful of buildings set at the bottom of a steep cliff. So Ab, we're in Husinik right now. And so usually when they arrive in a pilgrim's town, Armin will make sure that they're the ones sitting at the front of the bus. As we are approaching the village, the feelings you're having right now, you never heard you never heard it before after. Just enjoy these feelings. And then they they respond by crying. They don't say anything. They cannot say anything. As you're approaching the village, it's a different feeling. It's never gonna happen again. It's and everybody else happen. will be made to wait so that whoever's village it is is the first person to step foot off the bus. What we're looking for is a place called Bornazian Street, which is here. And then we walk right up there. So I'm following my daughter with, she's got the map of the village. So it's amazing, these streets are the same streets that my great-grandmother walked on. And I'm following her and she's, you know, navigating us toward the, her, her okay. land. And we found the exact place. So this is it. Yeah. And there was no question, it was so cool. And uh, I mean, it, I found it overwhelming. My daughter brought a picture, a wedding picture, of my paternal grandmother and her husband. Yeah, so it's um, it's like old, old-timey, sepia-toned, and it's my great-grandmother with her hair up in, you know, a very high-necked white gown, and my great-grandfather sort of standing stiffly in this dark suit, and out of the blue, where we found my grandmother's piece of land, I said, I want to bury this picture here. 
I think my dad and I were just like, oh, well, we're just gonna, we're just gonna bury it in the land, like in the dirt. I had no idea I was gonna do that. I don't even know why I did that. It was just this sort of like, oh, I got, I just gotta put her here because she was here, and now I want to put her here so that she can be back here again somehow. And so it it was very like spontaneous sort of realized that this was this opportunity to sort of return something or give her her like this little tiny piece of Armenia back and in that in that way also give us a sense of belonging to this little piece of land I kept getting choked up and then when my daughter and I um, started to bury the picture um, we made a cross on top of after we buried it, we made a cross with using little stones. And there's a thing called, uh, an Armenian cross is called a kachka. And there were all these stones that look like that, so it, it looks like a kachka. I sort of brought her home in a way. It's very touching. My dad cried. It was like, part of what it meant so much to me about it was how watching him feel what he was feeling, especially knowing how much he had not felt in the course of his life about this type of thing, which in turn felt like a connection, like like I was connecting with him in a way that we hadn't connected in our, you know, in the course of my life. In her book, Carol wrote a lot about rituals, the way pilgrims respond to finally reconnecting with a place that their family had been taken away from for so long. There's something sacred about the house itself, she told me. And I found many who hid there, either buried or hid photographs of family in places that either actually were the family house or stood for the family house. And other rituals, I'll just mention a couple. One is digging earth, which everyone did, and bringing some home from their village. And another is invocation, what I call invocation, and that is speaking, calling forth to the ancestors. And I don't mean these way distant ancestors that they didn't know, but their parents or grandparents and saying, here I am, mom, and I'm calling for you. I want you to meet my son. I want you, I want to tell you things. I want to thank you. And it was that sense of finding that place to call forth those ancestors that made so clear to me that this was really holy land, that this was a place, this home, the house and the home were a conduit to something transcendent and healing. It's a bittersweet type of a feeling because um, people who come here, it's a closure. They get a closure. Things were a question mark for them all their lives. But they, by coming here, by communing with their ancestors, they feel very relieved. And uh, I guess psychologically, it's a closure.
you know, we sort of walked through history together. It wasn't just a trip, you know, it wasn't just, I mean, the journey as a journey was a journey through the history of what happened to Armenians. And even though she has read about it and I had read about it, being there is very different. And having that bond with my daughter is just phenomenal. It's still there. I mean, every time I see her. I think for me, it helped me connect to a sense of belonging. There's no changing the history that we share and the identity, and there's no pretending that that's not there. And so I think it had been sort of unexplored or uncharted, and now we can map it together and um, refer to it together and sort of have that shared experience that wasn't there before. It changed me. I mean, my life is not so heavy. It's not, I don't carry as much weight with me. Trauma is a powerful emotion. Jeez, I had no idea. Telling this story was the key that unlocked the door that I didn't know existed. And now it's open. This episode was produced by Alex Atak and Dina Sabri and edited by me, Dana Balut. Fact-checking was by Dina Sabri and sound design by Munzer El-Hashem. Our team also includes Nadine Shakir, Zena Duwidar, and Finbar Anderson. And uh, as a quick postscript to this story, Nubar ended up going back on a second trip to historic Armenia. This time he went with a camera crew and a fixer. The fact that we were able to find my grandmother's plot of land and we buried her wedding picture there. I have to go and buy that land. And this time, he wanted to see if he could actually buy his grandmother's plot of land. If you tell them you're an Armenian filmmaker who is doing a documentary about your grandparents who um, vanished during the genocide, ah, they're going to get a little bit jittery. The film's not out yet, um, but we'll post updates to it on our social media when it is. We're at Cunning Cultures on both Instagram and on Twitter. And you can watch the trailer for the film at scarsofsilence.com. A very special thank you to Susanna Petrosian and Salpi Gazarian at the University of Southern California's Institute of Armenian Studies. They're the ones that gave us their generous permission to use the oral history interview with Armin Aroyan. And thank you as well, of course, to Abby and uh, Nubair Adixanian for sharing their story with us, and to Carol Bertram and Annie Kakajian. Carol's book uh, is called A House in the Homeland, and you can find it at Stanford University Press. If you're interested in finding out more about Annie's tours, or maybe even going on one yourself, you can find her on Facebook, uh, search Historic Armenia. We're taking a break over the holiday period, but we'll be back with a new episode on January 12th. Even my friends were teasing me last night. They were saying, like, we're going to line up. They want my autograph <laughs> after this episode. I said, okay, you guys line up. <laughs> so it's like, you're becoming famous. And I said, no, no, no. <laughs> it was very funny. 